0: Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this podcast, we showcase unusual success stories because unusual times call for unusual stories. I'm so excited to introduce you to my guest today, Scott Frankfurt, one of my mentors, one of the people that has helped me so much and always gives such great advice out here in Los Angeles. He's done everything from making hits in the 80s to working as the vice president of Spectrasonics, one of the most respected software music companies in the world, to now managing and running his own home studio that is so professional it would blow your mind. He's had people like Earth, Wind & Fire, Manhattan Transfer, Sergio Mendez, Grammy Award winners here, there, everywhere. He has done it all in the music business, and he is absolutely 100% the real deal, as real as it gets. I'm so excited to sit down and talk with him today about everything and about how he got where he is. There is so much gold in this episode for you. For anybody who wants to truly make it in the music business, I would say that Scott Frankfurt has made it in every sense of the word. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Scott Frankfurt, thank you for joining me today, my man. How are you? I am well. Thank you, Ross. It's a real joy. I love you, man. I love the vibe that you got going on in the back of your studio for those who are looking at the video feed. Cozy as always.
1: Thank you. Yes, this is the control room here at Scott Frankfurt Studio. And uh, yeah, that's um, some of the stuff that's uh, lying around. But um, there's two stations, so I'm sitting where I normally work. This is actually the exact spot I would normally work in. And you've been here, so yeah. you know you know what it's like. But um, yes. It's yeah. the
0: mothership. It's amazing. One of the coolest studios you'll ever see. He's got cables coming in and out of everywhere. (laughs) He has turned his house into one of the most amazing recording studios you'll ever see. Just every room is rigged to record full bands, uh, symphonic orchestras. You can have a drummer in one room. You can have a vocalist in the bathroom. You can have ten musicians in the den. It's really a sight to behold. Um, Labor of love. No doubt. I think we'll get into that in just a minute, but first... I'm guessing that you have a pretty typical success
1: story, wouldn't you say, Scott? Not at all, not at all. Uh, and, and success, <laughs> not at all. you know, I mean, uh, you know, what is what is that, you know, in terms of how one defines that is probably crucial in a in a show like yours, you know. Sure. I, uh,
0: so tell tell us a little bit about what is the uh the quick introduction, the paragraph intro to Scott Frankfurt, whatever you want to share. Sure.
1: Well, um I am a husband. Um, I care very much about the integrity of my my family and my, my wife. Her name is Sharon. She's uh, my co-conspirator in all things. Um, and then I am a musician uh, since I was a kid, and uh, that has brought me present day to... I'm a recording studio owner, uh, sound designer, um, arranger, producer. How many slashes you want to throw over there? It seems like you have to be able to do a lot of things these days to... To get to get along uh, in the business, but we're still here, very grateful for that. And um, yeah, I had a kind of a dual career, you know, that made made it possible for me to pursue the things I love and pa- and yeah. are passionate about, you know, uh, along with things that, you know, how do how do you survive while you're doing that in an, in an artistic, you know, industry? So so it was definitely uh, absolutely, you know, mostly. Mostly, you know, standing on shoulders of people um, that guide you along yeah. the way and uh, and things like that. But yeah, that's the the short version. Is husband, musician, studio owner, entrepreneur, um, okay. yeah, and uh, love, lover so. of music. Yeah. So, all right, give us a little breakdown of the
0: steps, just broad strokes of your career from the beginning to now. What have you done? for work, self-employed, just the general bullet point list of your career up
1: until this point? Well, let's see. Um, starting from the ice cream shop, you mean? Like in high school? <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, that's where,
0: if that's where it begins, then that's where it begins.
1: <laughs> kind of starts there. Um, uh, but the, the bullet points are much simpler. Um, I wanted to be a... Uh, Recording studio drummer. So I discovered okay. the drums in my early teens. After playing the piano as a kid, you know, mandatory piano lessons from the parents, you know, and Absolutely. then uh, bar mitzvah. The Jewish household here out in the San Fernando Valley, you know, and so bar mitzvah and um, and you have to. Uh, so born you know, and raised you know, in the greater LA area. That's right. That's right. Okay. And um, the um, first time I heard a hi hat go. I was like, my DNA rearranged, you know, it was like one of those moments where wow. it was like, clearly this is what I love. I don't know how to yeah. get into this, but so that the so bar mitzvah was the way to get the drum set. You know, it was like, <laughs> okay. Okay. that was how to do that. I was uh, in a neighborhood where there was, you know, pretty vibrant music scene out here in the Valley, believe it or not in the seventies. Cool. And, um, and so I was in a band within the first year of my drum lessons with a bunch of people a lot better than me, you know, 15-, 16-year-olds. Year yeah. And so I had a really nice um, entree into, uh, okay, I'm, I want to be a drummer no matter what, what everyone says. This is what I want to do. Yeah. And we were actually doing pay-for gigs, you know, by the time I was, uh, yeah, by the time I was 14 and a half, 15 Anyway, so so okay. that all the way through school through college, uh music, 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 drums, drums, drums. when you say I, pay for gigs, what do you mean? Like little bars yeah, or what, yeah. what kind like, of gigs? No, we no, well, about? I mean I, we were a little underage for bars, but we could go to like like uh, um under twenty-one uh clubs. We could do um local there okay. used to be a lot of local places you could play as a band. And then, you know, yeah. weddings, um, you know, casuals. We would do casuals. Um, and other bar mitzvahs maybe. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> This turned
0: into from bar mitzvah uh, to
1: bar mitzvah. Okay. Yeah, and I was yeah. with some some really great musicians. I mean, Victoria Shaw today. She's a, a quite a formidable songwriting force in Nashville. You know, she's really terrific. Wow. That was my. She was my first band, and uh, the Vicky Shaw band. Wow. So, <laughs> so uh, anyway, through college, um, playing my way, um, got some scholarships in high school. I was very fortunate to uh, connect with. Um, the local music here, you know, like I say, was was pretty great. I mean, um, so we had Dave Cause as our lead saxophone in our jazz band. You know, so I'm I'm marching and I'm playing jazz, and we're we're doing festivals and winning scholarships and this kind of thing, and and so I had a lot of encouragement to do that. Decided I wanted yeah. to go to North Texas State University and go full jazz, you know, um, okay. down that path. But you know, the parents had other. Other plans for lots of reasons, you know. It's like, um, so I ended up getting rerouted to uh, USC. And I'll be honest, you know, I was, I was, I was, um, I was, I was a pretty miserable Trojan, you know, um, because I was in like five bands at the time outside of school. I mean, is there any other kind? Who who are the Trojans' enemies? Right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But there's no doubt that, you know, I was um, completely sold out for for music. I didn't even know how to become or yeah. aim at success. I just knew that that was breathing to me. That was everything. Yeah. And so I was doing that while trying to keep my studies going. So I I ended up with a comp sci equivalent degree after five years of school um, to appease you know all that stuff. So it was it was it was kind of like formidable or formative is what i meant to say it was formative and it was also like it was a struggle you know to try to to try to you know appease you know cuz without getting into the long you know personal background of all that you know it was definitely like there was a lot of pressure there was a lot of pressure so um yeah. to survive that also meant working in retail um and selling mm-hmm. drumsticks in the you know in the drum store you know and um so I learned a lot and then about sales. To the ice cream store later, right? Well, that was before, and that was like summer job, you know. But <laughs> oh, okay, uh, okay, yeah, out there at, in Simi Valley, World Music in Simi Valley back in the day, and um, but you know what was great about that is that uh, you know my dad was a real estate salesman, commercial real estate, um, and okay. so I heard sales my whole life in the house. You know, he worked from home a lot. Okay. And um, interesting. Yeah, and so um, you know that's a tough industry. You know, to to be an independent. Mm commercial real estate broker, you know, when you're up against, you know, those kinds of, those kinds of situations. So he had, he had a rough go of it, but, um, but I did by osmosis, just hear him selling all the time. And, um, and then one thing I kind of picked up from that was that to sell something is to care about the person that's buying it. And if you don't care about them, you really don't have a chance of genuinely succeeding in that business. If you just look at the numbers, if you just look at the commission, if you just look at the payday, so I picked that up. He never said yeah. that to me, but I picked it up by how he would talk to people. He had a he had a way, you know, of talking to people. And um, yeah, so right. that and his little office was like next to my little bedroom. So when I wasn't, you know, <laughs> you know on my drums, I'd yeah, pick yeah. that up. Anyway, so the sales thing went pretty well um, in Simi Valley, and um, and then I was one of the bands I was in was uh, produced by a man named Michael Marens. And Michael Marens back then, he, he's a formidable, you know, synthesist, uh, guitar player, producer, you know, and especially back then, uh, in his, you know, full strength back then, he was, he was quite, a, quite a guy. He was uh, also a journalist, writing for lots of technology companies and worked for technology companies. He was also working at this place more as a manager. And he took a liking to me. We were friends, very close friends. And um, mm-hmm. he introduced me to the OB-8, which he owned. Okay. And, um, of course, the OB-8 was in the synthesizer department. So I'm in the drum department selling okay. sticks, but all the cool stuff, and now yeah. the very first... <laughs> in the synth- that's the
0: way I always right. felt as a kid. That exactly. was my favorite area,
1: the exactly. synthesizer play. Well, this is now the Lindrum and the Emu yeah. uh, Drumulator and the um, uh, Emu SP-12 came out. And uh, this is the very first days where these machines were extremely expensive. and um, But if you could get one and you were thinking ahead to like, you know, you could take one of two roads back then. I'm a drummer. I'm threatened to buy drum machines, which was about where half yeah. of the Local 47 was. And okay. then the other half, which is this is a tool. I'm going to expand what I can do as a drummer. To the extent, I mean, Good. Ross, it was so... It was such an issue back then that I remember going with Michael to the local 47 um, and trying to figure out—we did a seminar for them on this is the technology, introducing only drummers to this technology. Yeah. And, you know, it was a split room. I mean, people were freaked out. It's like, you know, this is the enemy versus this is the future, you know. and uh, But anyway, yeah, so so I got I took to it, and he was such a great help. And, you know, everything I know about synthesizers today, I started learning with him, you know. And um that turned into the craziest opportunity that changed my whole life. And again, there's always this yeah. mix of serendipity with like passion, right. I think that makes anyone's career right. go. You have to love something very deeply sure. to endure all the crap you have to get through to get there, you know. Heartache. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the heartache. Yeah. And you might even know not even know you're doing it. You might even not even know, you might not be that clever to know this is this is how I'm going to you know, set myself up for a career, you know, especially, I mean, in my early, mid-20s. What did I know? I just knew I loved this thing, this music. So, one day, uh, a rep comes in from Insonic Corp., which is the last U.S. manufacturer of samplers kind of outside of the Japanese competition. You had Roland, Yamaha, Korg, all those Japanese companies. And basically... You had you had you know in Sonic and Emu, and that was basically it. And so I had a, a nice in with Emu because then the same man started working for Emu, uh, Michael Marins, and Michael um, Marens. And and so I was able to do stuff in the sound design world for the SP12 early sampling drum machine. Yeah. Um, even to the point where we had like a vinyl record of like cool sounds you could make with it and all this stuff. And oh, um, yeah, nice. So that so you sold, a rep or comes that you in. Yeah. What's that? No, no, you it was a vinyl like a oh. demonstration vinyl. You know those thin oh, ones okay. that you get the back of the magazine, keyboard magazine, or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. So, um, but the rep that came in was from Insonic Corp, and they had a sampler called the Mirage. You may be familiar with the Mirage. That was kind of the. I'm not actually. Yeah. No. Well, it's um, it was the in the land of Fairlights and emulators that were twenty, thirty, hundred thousand dollars to own Synclavier. A quarter of a million back then. Um, yeah. For under $2,000, you could buy a Mirage sampler and sample. And that's Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis. I mean, that's that's how all those hits were. You know, a lot of those hits have have tons of Mirage samples yeah. on them. And, okay. and on and on the thing goes. So Mirage had this, this big hit with this thing. And a really good sales force and a really good rep. He came out. He kind of noticed me because I was selling something at the time. I was selling a lot of... Um, uh, Emacs is the sampler that Emu had at the time, their compact sampler, competing with the Mirage. And they had this new thing out called uh, the, the, uh, uh, the EPS. Yeah, that's right. The EPS sampler. And, um, and I was selling a bunch of those, too. And he liked, I had some custom sounds, and he, he liked the sounds. And um, he said, you know, we have these sales training things back in Malvern, Pennsylvania. I think you'd be great for this. And so I got all yeah. excited. And so my boss at the sure. time, Larry Faragalli, you know, he was like super supportive and said, yeah, go back and train him, you know. And so went back there. And by the end of this four or five day experience of being at the Malvern, Pennsylvania factory where they, you know, they do all their own manufacturing there. I mean, it was a sight to see for, you know, someone my age to see that whole operation. It was amazing. Yeah. Um, I got noticed by the instructor, Roy Elkins, and he— uh, he said, You know, I'm going to pass along some of what you're doing here to our marketing team. And next thing I know, I'm in Jerry Kowarski's office, director of marketing for Insonic Corp, telling him, as this pompous little, you know, 24 year old or whatever I was. Sure. Uh, yeah. You know, you got a great sampler here, Jerry, but it's, the sounds are just awful. You really need me to help you wow. with the sounds. <laughs> yeah. I love it. So he gave me a job on the spot. And, um, it Excellent. was just hilarious, and there was another man there, Tony MacNanny, who was also hired on in the marketing okay. department that month. And um, yeah. so I became uh, from that meeting the West Coast chief sound developer for Insonic Corp. You know, and my job was to go to famous musicians' houses and sample them. Let's start off with George okay. Duke, and let's get George Duke's piano. Why don't you go over here and get yeah. Paul Jackson Jr.'s guitar? Why don't you go over here and record all the guys wow. in Chicago? How about Peter Wolf over there? How about the system over here? These were all names that at the time were like really big and pop, you know. You're, you're traveling all around. You're you're on a plane all the time to do with this. A, well, most of it was West Coast. and oh, okay. um, And so I was able, because the L.A. studio scene, that's what they didn't have. They had the New York scene kind of covered, yeah. but they didn't have Okay. So— can you imagine what a gift that was for me to have an entree walking in with brand new technology that everyone's interested in saying, we're going to sample you. And I got to meet and get to know these people and make all these great memories. So it was a a real gift. Yeah. And for the next 10 years, that's how I was able to, you know, kind of selectively filter what happened on what I was really aiming for, which was my music career. So I right. had this retail and I had this sound design job for a decade. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. what I realized was that was a lot, I was doing the thing that I had to do to pursue the thing, the privileged thing. And I, I really do consider a music career a privilege. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we forget that. We think the music industry kind of owes us something, but it doesn't. You know, it's like right. a lot yeah, of people absolutely. competing for those very few spots. and oh, And yeah. so... The idea of of having um, this dual career and with that young energy, you know, mid-20s energy, I was able to do it. I was able to work full-time for InSonic and full-time pursue, you know. Uh, so I didn't sleep much, but that's mm-hmm. that's how I was able to selectively filter, like, okay, I'm not driving to Palm Springs for four hours to make $50. You know what I'm saying? That. I could rule that out because I had enough money to put bread on the table, right? So yeah, um, yeah. I I think in, every time I have, like, these kinds of conversations where, like, you know, the college kids will come through and check out the studio and, you know, ask me similar questions about, you know, sure, what did you think success was going to look like? I was just trying to, like, make music at any cost. I'd sleep on yeah. the floor next to those drums. I mean, I love them so much, and I love yeah. synthesizers so right. much and being in bands and creative pursuits and 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 all of that stuff so much it didn't matter and then i was so truly fortunate that the industry that i chose i actually really loved and took to yeah so the sound design side was uh, and then eventually that that parlayed into a gig at spectrosonics
0: which i think a lot of people will know yes makers of stylus rmx and trillion and An atmosphere, an omnisphere—the things that I used to love and want as a kid more than
1: anything. (laughs) Well, that's a a great transition because you know, because of the work that the formative work that was going on there for that decade, um, there was a time when um, I could work on this. I could work on music at at a level that was you know, like I say, kind of kind of tailored. I could say no to stuff that was maybe distracting or marginal and say yes to the good stuff, even if it was fewer and farther between. And what that allowed was for uh, me to have a really good run, um, producing, arranging, programming, taking advantage of all the technology I had access to. And what's interesting about that is that um, Emu bought in Sonic Corp. And in a day, Ross, I had no job. Yeah. So oh, wow. it was, uh, really? hey, Scott, it's been great. So sorry to tell you this. We've oh. been bought. Um, no. We're restructuring. We're going to become a hearing aid company or a sound card company or whatever <laughs> they what became. They became a hearing aid company? They're, really? They're, the interesting thing about Insonic was it was basically uh, Al Sharpentier and those guys, they were all about custom silicon, custom chip for an application yeah. that yeah. for a business that already exists. Yeah. Well— Keyboards were one place that already existed that needed chips. The Commodore 64 mm. needed a chip, right? So you yep. had a lot to do okay. with that. And and then hearing aids needed a chip. <laughs> and, and early sound cards. What a world. Anyway, right. So what a world. I had about, I had the biggest panic of my life, like, because you get used to that paycheck, right? And how yeah. am I going to keep all of this of going? And, um, but at that time, records were doing really well. You could still get a really decent sized budget and do really good work. Yeah. And it wasn't as crazy as, yeah. as, you know, now in the last 10 years. And um, so I had about a seven-year run of just doing that. And then I turned 40 mm-hmm. years old. I was married at the time mm-hmm. to my late wife, Jody, And um, mm-hmm. we had an artist career in the gospel scene and all that stuff how did the Jewish kid get into the gospel scene story for another day? But, <laughs> <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> I love it. But, gonna, I have a
0: feeling we're going to revisit that at some point. But <laughs> but, um, but then again, it's like, how did you do anything? So right, it's, all, exactly. it's all part so of it, right? It's
1: completely random. And so, so at that time, my mindset was married to this incredible woman who was 14 years older than me. Um, I was looking okay. at that saying... You know, I have a feeling 10 years from now, I'm not going to be wanting to chase what was going on in the business, which is you'd have, you know, a lot of income because you'd be on a couple of great projects on a nice run. And then you'd be like three months just like waiting for the next thing. And then you'd be up. And It wasn't like you can do now where you can like start a business that can kind of roll and be a little more stable. Um, uh, And so I was looking at that and said, you know, I think in January was coming around. I I thought, you know, I'm going to, throw my hat back in the ring and I don't know who to call except my fiercest competitor, my actually one of my heroes, Eric Persing. And I I yeah, I called him. I said, Genius, hey Eric. No doubt, by the way. Yeah. I I I gave him a ring and I said, listen, I'm going to the Nam show. I'm thinking about going back into sound design. Could you tell me where I might walk by and drop off a card? That was really the purpose of my call, to which he said, yeah. Scott, you're not gonna believe this, but your name came up the other day and we just assumed you were still making records and You know, wouldn't have any interest in this, so I didn't call you, but um, could we meet and could we talk? And then the rest is kind of history. You know, 13 years of me and Eric were kind of, you know, very, very tightly woven together in the construction of all those instruments you mentioned. And uh, to this day, I still collaborate with Spectrosonics, and it's a tremendous, so cool, wonderful thing that I was able to uh, enjoy, kind of a second life uh, in the sound design world, uh, which, again, allowed us to... uh, Make these products that, you know, I just have so much respect for, for what Eric has done, yeah. and I'm very proud of, of what I was able to contribute. And, but at the same time, you know, that day I made that phone call, I had absolutely nothing but passion and love in the tank. You know, just like, I just yeah. want to keep doing this. And, and a whole um, lot of skill. Well, it develops. Obviously, you stick to anything long enough, you get you get pretty good at it, and then you know God's grace and talent and whatever He puts in there. I think all of us are given you know some stuff that's like to be to be expanded upon, you know, with our unique Mm -hmm. our unique personalities and stuff like that. So yeah, so so the Spectrasonics run. um, What was the uh, What was the first
0: project? Was Atmosphere the first one? I'm trying to get a time. I mean, I remember the Atmosphere was my first. Experience with Spectrasonics. I mean, I had Fruity Loops at the time. I don't, do you remember Fruity Loops, of the software that became FL Studio? You know, so I had Fruity Loops version three, and it had like the FL oscillator, like a three X oscillator, and I was like ding, ding ding ding. And then like I saw an ad for Atmosphere, and I just it exploded my brain. I just couldn't believe. I was like, whoa, you can get those sounds. Like I, I think the first pad I loaded was like the ooh ah female choir. I was like ooh ah. <laughs> And if you just held it down, it would just kind of morph between ooh and ah. And I just played some things on my MIDI keyboard, and I was like, oh, my God. I mean, that was the first software uh, synthesizer instrument that I ever bought was Atmosphere. That's amazing. And that that was, like, a lot of money to me because I was working in retail at that time, and it was, like, 200, 300 bucks or something like that. So it was, like, an entire paycheck for me (laughs) went to that, but, like, (laughs) no— no regrets at all <laughs> like i was like oh my
1: god well so was that the first one or was there so was, was there another customer. one i mean I-, I was a sample library okay. customer of eric back then okay and those three instruments were on licensed technology spectrosonics was not a software company at the time they were a library oh, oh, company I see. okay and so yeah. i came on right when those three products had already been out and like i say i was a customer um, mm-hmm. and then right when uh, the um, uh, the transition started about, you know, it was it was 2003. So I, I might be a little fuzzy on exactly what the tr- that point was. But basically, sure. um, we started up on, um, the expansions uh, for for RMX, going from stylus to stylus RMX yep. was when I entered. I the remember scene. that. And that okay. was also the time when Glenn Olander, the software developer, came online and Spectrosonics became a software company. So it was no longer just soundware where you'd buy CD-ROM. Right. Now it was this. So right. I helped develop a lot of the sound software interface that became Stylus RMX. So when you got nice. Atmosphere, you're probably 2002, I would guess. Yeah, that make, that sounds about right. Yeah, and uh, maybe two thousand one, and um, and that mm. that transition was massive. It was a huge risk because ha- going from no engine to your own engine is a tremendous software risk. Well, anyway, all all of that to say, yeah, that that turned into about seven or eight expanders um, for RMX. It turned into uh, all of the time designer. I'm very proud of time designer in in stylus RMX. That was largely that interface um, was kind of largely thought up here. Um, It's a team. Everybody. Yeah, yeah. It's it's amazing that a product from those days is still a viable tool in 2020. Mm -hmm. And it's because of things like that, because you can change anything that's in it to anything else. So it's kind of an infinite tool. In That way, and you, and
0: hear, you hear it, it everywhere. everywhere. For those people who don't know it by name, you've heard it in commercials and songs. I mean, it's like there are still some of those loops that I'll hear from the original V1 <laughs> of Stylus. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I know it like <laughs> at the back of my hand. You know, you'll, I'll, I'll be watching a commercial and you'll just say, Oh, yep, I know that drum loop or some composition somewhere.
1: I used to think, you know, we'd, we'd work so hard on these multis, you know, in RMX and stuff. You could play one key and it would do this whole like evocative. Evolving right. rhythm that would like, and you know, it's like one key press, and we'd say, you know, we ought to be getting royalty checks for that because it's like, <laughs> that's like the theme I of mean, National problem. Geographic right there. And it's like, well, where's, you know, where's <laughs> mine? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, you're not wrong about that. You're really not wrong. But it's, uh, oh you know, uh, I mean, I'm totally, totally joking, but it was, it was, it was kind of funny yeah, because there's I a lot of. It.
0: All right. So, um, so you're, you you become the VP of Spectrasonics, one of the most well known. So, how long did it take you to become VP?
1: Well, um, I would say um, probably about. I'm guessing here. I'm sorry. It, it was probably about halfway into my no tenure way. there, something like that. It, okay. it was. A, it was an evolution, um, and you okay. know, in a lot of ways, when it comes to anything you're talking about, like in in that case, or even in your own career path or anything, yeah. it's always a little easier to look in the rear view, and see what happened. Sure. Because when, when you're in it, okay. you almost don't realize it. But I think I got the title, you know, about seven or eight years into it, you know, working from, okay. like, just an entry-level guy and then working on the sound dev team or kind of helping create right. the sound dev team, I suppose. Um, trade shows, the whole so, thing, everything that it took to yeah. to get that younger company going. And, um, and then the... The VP also took a couple of paths. It started out as VP yeah. of the company, but then turned into VP of design because my strengths were really in design and sound. Okay. Uh, that's where my love was. Yeah. Not so much, right. I don't know that I had as much talent at meeting with distributors, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, But I would do, for the Persings, you know, for Eric, because uh, I have so much respect for him and learned so much from him, um, i would uh i I would do whatever it took to make the company better and i think that's also a part of probably something that's probably a valuable thing to remember is that is that uh you know being willing to to throw down in an area where you know is needed as opposed to what you enjoy sometimes that's a sacrifice you have to make to to be in the right room you know to be in a place where where you want to be and um, Interesting. Yeah, to sit in the front row that. Of, of that company, boy. yeah, to sit in the front row of that for all those years was was uh, as far as my adult life. Yeah, that was the most precious time of my adult life in terms of work sure. and career. Meanwhile, uh, I was able to still pursue sessions and all the things I've always right. loved. And so, was it hard? Yeah, yeah. Because and then I think I think that will ring true with every every one of your. Audience and and I know yourself. It's like anything that that mm. takes off, you know, looks like an overnight success mm. and all that stuff yeah. has nothing to yeah. do with that. Your your whole life has been building <laughs> no, up, yeah. no, yeah. right? Your whole life, everything that your life brings to bear, how you think about people, how you think about the world, how you think about you know uh, relationships, how you think about money, how you think about what wh- what you're bringing into the world, uh, uh, mm-hmm. bears on on these successes, you know, because at the end of the day, you, you, if, you know, I, I really believe that you you need to be as 360 degree of a person as you can possibly be very hard to do. But if, if you can aim at, you can't do it all the time, but if you can aim at every part of your life, they, they inform each other. So if I'm, Mm. if I'm ruining my marriage, I'm not going to do so great at work. I mean, I'm talking about me. I'm not saying that people haven't been very successful who've ruined marriages. I'm just saying that for me, I've always pursued that path that, like, I personally, if everything's okay at home, I'm going to be better when I show up for that meeting. Or if I'm going to perform that And that goes back to, like,
0: what is your definition of success? Right. That goes back to, you know, some people say, like, okay, the money, the fame, that is success. Forget my kids, forget my family, forget my wife, forget all of that. But right. for you, that's, and for me as well, obviously, that's an integral part. Like, there is no success without those other aspects. Yes.
1: I, I believe be that. Eric. I, yeah. I believe that. I, I really believe that the biggest success I have is that I wake up every single day and get to do what I love to do. Now, that yeah. is a loaded statement. There is a lot of pain, a lot of hard work, a lot of, even, even like my health, I, I did pay a little bit on my health side for working 20 hours a day for 20 years. You know, but yeah. I still, though, wake up every single day and love what I do every single day. It's like for me, having a big chunk of work to have to get done. You know, uh, with a, yeah. a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or whatever, yeah. and uh, and sit yeah. down and hit the day. You know, to me, that's like I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. So everything aligns, everything's happy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and I I feel like that's that's you know, one of the best things you could tell anybody to pursue is like, well, just make sure that you love what you're doing. And, and not everyone gets that. Mm -hmm. Not everybody gets that, you know? And, and, and what I mean is they may want it, but it's hard to achieve. And there is a little bit of serendipity in there and there is a little bit of, um, the unknown, you know, but I, I know that, you know, making your own luck and all that stuff, I, I, I do believe there's aspects of that that are very, very true. There's, there's a, there's a, We call it around here when we're talking with our our interns, employees, assistants, et cetera, we talk about the energy exchange. Not to be Mm -hmm. woo-woo, because I'm not really a woo-woo guy. But the truth is, for me, I believe, and I I think it's universally true, you put good energy into a situation, good energy is going to come back at you. If you're just pulling all the energy out of the room and there's just, you know, you come in and then you vacuum some of the energy and then you leave – that's not going to be successful in the long run, you know, it's, it's what you Mm. bring to it. And, and that is something that, um, I, I really feel like is, uh, it's crucial. It's crucial for, for someone wanting to get forward in whatever they do is make sure that you're, you know, I I think likability wins. I think, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, being a decent person wins at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, you may have a lot of money, success, fame, but you may spend Mm -hmm. the next three decades miserable and alone. Was it worth it? Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) how many people get all of it? Like get the fame, the money, the success, and the happiness. It's like, whoa. (laughs) It's a tall. (laughs) It's shrinking. Yeah, it (laughs) shrinks. It shrinks. It's not impossible. But, you know, I think think so much of it is um, your state of mind, too. You know, and um, and that's why I, I always applaud people that are givers, you know, the people that give their time, give of their, their resources, things like that, that are, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I wish I was more that way. I want to, I want, I, that's something I aim for is, is that generous spirit. You're on that list of people, some of the most generous people that I know. And, you know, I mean that. I mean, that. <laughs> I'm here today because you're a generous person. And the day I met you on a session, I think it was... Tori spelling or somebody yeah. like that? Yeah, it was a Tori spelling yeah. reality show that yeah, never yeah. aired. <laughs> you and your beautiful wife Marua, you know, came here as uh, yeah. as actors. Um, you know, but you were playing yourselves. And um, it yeah. was uh, I immediately was struck by these are good people. These are people I yeah. wouldn't mind knowing. And then we had a great conversation after that and you showed me your amazing yeah. DJ skills that to this day I still kind of like, oh dude, you are the you are the yeah. messenger man. <laughs> you are the messenger. Thanks, man. Thank you, brother. Yeah, well, it's true. It's it's why I'm here and why I feel it's important to to you know support anything you guys are doing because whatever you set your mind to, um, I learned by just observing you and being your friend. You know where your heart is, yeah. and that's attractive. I think to people like me who are um, you know I mean I. Nowadays, when I'm not doing sound design and I'm running the recording studio, my whole job is looking into that ISO and trying to convince a 22-year-old girl that she can let her heart open when she sings that thing a little more than she ever thought possible, or whoever it is. you know. It's like you have to have a little bit uh, of—you have to have those feelers, I guess, to know where people are at to do this job. And so I knew the day I met you. I knew there's a quality chap in a quality marriage, doing great things and so anyway, yeah. that's just want to say that. Thank you.
0: Well that that is I mean, you know, you know that means the world to me and that respect is is more than mutual. Um, and you know, I think this is actually a good transition into to the next thing that because I, I think I can give a little bit of a a, a a bit of a segue here for those who aren't looking at the video feed and wondering what all that crazy crap is behind you right now. Oh. Um, I, because right. you know, so Scott runs a studio, it's, and one of the coolest now it's a home a big home, but he has transitioned it into a world-class recording facility so that he can compete with some of the top, really, some of the top symphonic recording studios in all of the L.A. area. I mean, you've got preamps, you've got every microphone ever invented by anybody ever. <laughs> like, you've got all of the things, you know, all of the EQs. And enough the speaker to get and, with, yeah, um, that's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> enough to, to, to do amazing So. So, you know, of course, when I met you the first time, I was like, this guy is living a dream of me. I mean, that was the first thing I thought because he's in his home, but he has pimped out every square inch of his home to live his dream. (laughs) Like every square inch has cables for microphones. Like he thought of everything even down to what kind of rug he's going to put in the den to reflect the <laughs> microphone right it's true. It's true. <laughs> for his classic organ that he's got in there. I'm right. like, what? Who is this guy? Like, he's got a grand piano over there. He's got drummers. And, like, the vibe that you have created in this space is nothing short of, of miraculous, I would say. And when you talk about that energy exchange, I mean, there, yeah, you're sitting in a chair 20 hours a day, and that part sucks. <laughs> and, like, stressing and all of that is no fun. But, like... <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the people that are coming through there. I mean, he's got guys from, like, Earth, Wind, and Fire, some of the, the you know, best session violinists on planet Earth. He's got, like, classic jazz vocalists, Sergio Mendez. He's got Grammys on the wall, like, pictures from ridiculous 80s hair band days <laughs> all the way up to, you know, modern stuff, and... But, like, when you're sitting in that space, you know, with, like, the candle lit behind you, you're sitting, and, you know, and you guys have thought of every detail. You know, there there's food, there's water, there's great coffee. You just feel so at home in a space like that. And, you know, all of the people that come through and record, they're just so well taken care of. And that that made a huge impression on me, like, to this day. I mean, now it's COVID, so we don't see anybody right. anymore. But, like, I remember coming home from that and just being like, wow, like— what a nice touch it is to have these bottles of, you know, labeled mouthwash in the bathroom. <laughs> what a nice touch it is to have multiple glass jars of of candy and bananas and just things that make you everywhere you go feel so at home. And, you know, I, I was just sitting there on the couch as as a fly on the wall in some of these sessions. And the vibe, I mean, it's just the things coming out of that control room, the sound, it's just so imbued with magic. There's just this feeling of this is good. What is happening here? I don't know what's happening here, but it feels good to me. It feels like this is like a hub hub. that is bringing universal good out into the world. And I mean, I I think, you know, kudos to you for for building that and for having the vision to do that. Because I can only imagine it must have taken years and years and years to turn this concept into... The mothership that is now your work environment, right? I mean, how long did it actually
1: take? Well, that was that was a very kind description. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm yeah, everywhere. Frankfurt Studio is definitely a product of a lot of blood, sweat, and tears of my my wife Sharon and I. Um, she is mm. a major part of supporting this habit <laughs> because yeah. she understands that hospitality. Um, is something that uh, is crucial to kind of the culture that we're we're creating you know and um, yeah. in our little space here. and you know that that has to do with all the techno and I, I love technology I mean that's been my industry yeah. but mm-hmm. Ross when when what you described is is exactly what we we hope because, At the end of the day, all the end user cares about, when I say the end user, the listener, is what comes out of those speakers or those earbuds. They don't care how it got here. And if I can make you feel something before you perform, Mm -hmm. like you're cared for, you're in a safe place, you can uh, do what you need to do. Sharon understands that if we can hand you, instead of, you know, a stale coffee from a whatever, from a packet— if we can hand you a cappuccino instead that you're going to feel cared for because we do care for you and you're going to enjoy your session more you're going to get more value for it you're going to give me something on the microphone that gets through the speakers that's better than what it could possibly been same thing with like scott how'd you get that drum sound or how'd you get that kick drum it's like i can tell you i can show you but that's it's really like, was there a pencil on the stand? So that you didn't have to feel awkward when you were asked to change the and of four at yes. bar 62. You know, it's like, it's those little touches. And so she's sure. she's amazing at at bringing that part of the business to its um, aesthetic level. She's in charge of how how things look. As far as the, like how long it took to, to kind of put everything together, you know, it's one of those things where it's all passion driven. So I moved in here in, in 1993 mm-hmm. And um, we converted the, for the first couple of years, I, I had most of the gear that I had at the time in the living room. So we just had a kind of standalone, you know, kind of like people do now, you know. Um, and that turned into the dream of, hey, I, you know, because I'm a drummer, right? So I have to have a space that's got good sound transfer quality. It, ha- it has to keep the outside out and the inside in. So um, I was, uh, when I was talking about her- Heroes earlier, I couldn't help but think of Dennis Lambert, who's a, uh, Great songwriter. He wrote things like, um, ain't no woman like the one I got. You know, that's those hits from those days. Yeah. Uh, to this day. Sure. But he's he's a, a great, great writer and a great man. And he had a studio in Encino. And okay. um, that studio was uh, full-fledged. And I just felt like I was in a spaceship up there, too. And um, and yeah. he was looking at me, and, you know, he was one of those mentoring types. And, you know, mm. it would just... Uh, Scott, there's nothing like having a pad of paper and a pencil and just being able to have a coffee and a cigarette and just, you know, just write from your heart. And he would just talk about that, like, with so much gravitas, I just felt like, yeah. <laughs> you know? I just wanted to be that guy that he was describing. Get me a cigarette. <laughs> right? And so, so he had this whole thing happening there. And so um, when it came time for us to, like, start building our, our conversion— uh, I asked him, you know, if he could give me some pointers, and he he turned me on to his builder. and Ross, you have to understand I'm older than dirt, right? so ninety three, I mean, you know, but right. in ninety three studios on Magnolia Boulevard, on Sunset, all that stuff, they were already built, they were done. And most of these builders that had specialized skills were they were uh, they had less to do. So it was the people like Michael Boddicker and this one and that one who built these amazing facilities at home using these retired studio builders. That was kind of a new oh. thing at the time. And there was even a lot of controversy. There was a lot of blowback of like, hey, you guys shouldn't have commercial facilities in your homes. You know, what are you doing? You know, and there was, there was a lot of blowback. Anyway, story for another time. Yeah. Bottom line is I was able to engage Ron Ballmer, one of the great, great studio builders of a uh, uh, Record Plant and all these different rooms. And so he helped— he helped uh with Greg Thompson, the designer of the room, um, get us to a place where we had like a little mini Schnee studio going on over here, you know, because Greg Thompson designed mm-hmm. Schnee Studios and and then Ron built uh, for Greg. And so um we're don't we do not we do not have floated floors, but we have just about everything else. We've got, you know, very heavy construction, yeah. very, very thick walls, good trapping, which um, yep. turned out to be a key reason why there was a symbiotic thing between me and Spectrosonics because I had a really solid listening environment, which is why I could work a lot from home uh, because Spectrosonics needed that kind of thing. So there was a real symbiosis going on there, but yeah, 93. And then, you know, again, um, our passion for making records and for, for uh, uh, working in the industry just kind of led all those decisions. So it's like, Hmm. All right. Well, I've got this really great ISO, but um, the piano's in the living room. Also have to rehearse this band next month, and they're five pieces. Where am I going to do that? I got to pre-produce those guys. So we decided to gut the living room <laughs> and just uh, redecorate that, so it kind of became a rehearsal stage. And then the rehearsal stage sort of turned into a, you know what? Why don't we just run a snake through here and set up the tie lines and just do the rest? I mean, we're all, we came this far. Let's go right. Ahead. Yeah, right. And so then that room uh, has um, uh, a, a really decent sound as it turns out we didn't really have you know I had George Augsburger tune the the commercial build over here in the in the three rooms okay. that we have over here but the rest of the house yeah. um which is amounts to those two rooms the 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 de- we call it the Shire the den you can see all the stuff on the website by the way there's a map but, uh, and then the, the living room. We'll, we'll link, we'll link to it. Don't yeah. worry. <laughs> uh, but, the, and then the, the living room itself, um, you know, so we, we wired those and then we realized, oh, we need a place to isolate amplifiers. So we built a place in the garage where it's like a partition where, you know, the amps can, little amp room, wow. they can live and they have feeds. And then every oh, little man. closet, every hallway, anywhere where we thought we could remote something, um, we put tie lines in while the walls were open. And, um, and that made it possible to do all kinds of things, echo chambers and yeah, full rhythm section plus horns, or we can do 20 wow. strings um, live in the room and do a full rhythm section in here without blinking. You know, Pre-COVID, it was no yeah. big deal. Now we are doing sessions again, which is great. Um, and one of the mm-hmm. interesting things about how we're set up is that every room has an exterior door. So when clients yeah. roll up now, We can still – we still distance. We still do the PPEs. We do everything we have to do. But the nice thing is that the foot traffic can be optional. Like if people don't want to cross paths with other people, they can literally come into their space from the outside and go out. And that Mm -hmm. is allowing us to feel like we're, you know, working with people again instead of screens. That's been really Mm -hmm. a nice thing. It's not quite back Mm -hmm. to where it was, but it is coming back online. And uh, very, very happy about that. Yeah, so – and then the gear – the gear is one of those things where um, I've been there and back. I've been to the, I have okay. to own everything that there is as a younger yeah. younger producer to know. Get and keep and retain the tools that you actually have a relationship, a, a technical and a musical relationship with. Keep those. Yeah. Focus on those. So this room that I'm sitting in here was wall-to-wall synthesizers, racks, just just insanity, the whole mm. arms race of of music, mm. you know, back in the 2000s mm. and all that. And mm. and I reduced it down to the pieces that I use every day and love. And um, so as a result now, and now years going by, the studio has been officially Scott Frankfurt Studio for about seven years or so, mm. um, uh, you know, where it's been a full-time everyday pursuit. Um That's, uh, you know, the gear has to accommodate two things. My personal taste as a producer is one thing, but when you have third-party engineers coming in, when you have um, artists that have opinions, when you have all those things, there are certain things you just have to have around for their comfort level. So you and I have talked about this, but it's just one of those weird things about mythology. Yeah. 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 You can't say this sounds as good as a Neve unless you have the Neve sitting there. <laughs> yeah, Does that yeah. make sense? You can't say, that you does. should try this mic because, believe me, this sounds as good as the 47 that you remember, which is okay to Sorry. say if you have a 47. Yes, and then right everybody there. relaxes and they go, all right, I'll listen to your blue microphone or whatever. And it's like... yeah. Okay, then then so you take out the mythology, and, and quite frankly, Ross, you take out the fear. Yeah. You take out the fear yeah. of the person the that's FOMO. like— yeah, and Yeah. And it's like all of a sudden the people start using their ears again, and they start listening to what right. they're actually hearing coming out of the speakers. And it's like, that sounds great. Right, like does I, I, that sound right. like there's a problem right. here, or does that sound musical as right. hell? And and you know what? And and kudos to Eric Persing, too, because I learned this in my palace training, so to speak, you know, know, doing that job. Because Eric uh, was one of the, I don't know if you ever heard me say this about him, but he's one of the great audio skeptics. He just doesn't believe anything Mm -hmm. until he hears it with his own ears, you know, and goes to great lengths to prove his theories about that stuff. So it doesn't matter if it's a $40 part or a $40,000 part. If it doesn't sound as good, if the expensive one doesn't sound as good for any reason, all the hype and all the marketing and all that, if the $40 part sounds better, it's like, that's what we use, you know? And it's like, that's a hard thing to, a lot of us take a lot of creative security and how much they spent on a piece of equipment when it's like, it takes a little more bravery to say, you know, this one sounds better on that person or on that thing. And so we have a nice mix, I think of tools that are, what are my favorite tools and the tools that people expect and that's really the mm-hmm. the why of how it, how it gets collected and you know i'll be honest with you i mean i've sharon will tell you we pretty much reinvest constantly we're just constantly mm-hmm. trying to keep the dream alive by reinvesting and um, and so that's largely that's and then you turn back you know two decades later and it's like oh yeah we got we got a bunch of gear and now it's vintage a <laughs> fair <laughs> Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, that brand new thing is <laughs> yeah, that is the old exactly. sound that you were fighting so hard right, to convince exactly. people.
1: My microphone, yeah. I, it was the most expensive. I thing remember I that up. blue microphone right. back in the day. Right, right, right. Right. Or my drums. They were, to me, they're still brand new, right? But it's like, you know, they're these Gretsch drums that are thousands like, of sessions yeah, later. Yeah, apparently, like, really coveted. It's like, like, I had fire. no idea. They're just the drums I bought yeah. in high
0: school. You know, how did I know? The drums. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> <That's> so funny. <laughs>
1: But you like know like a, one
0: other takeaway that I learned something that really really impressed, I mean that 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 will stay with me forever is you know obviously you have worked and I think this is this is good to know for people who are starting out like you are you you, you command, command a much higher day rate hourly rate than you know many people obviously tons of gear tons, tons of, experience of experience is is a big part of that but also the experience of you know the the hospitality side of things that you take so good care of but another thing that really stuck with me is the preparation and care that you put into sessions before the session. Because I just kind of assumed, like, you know, somebody's going to roll. I don't know what I thought, honestly. I was like, okay, oh, somebody rolls in, earth, wind, and fire, whoever it is, they show up, and you figure it out, and you go. Well, having helped you set up some of those sessions the day before, or a couple days before, yes. I, know, like, I learned, I was like, oh, that's not how it works. I mean, you are so meticulous about, okay, We've got so-and-so coming on Friday. It's Tuesday, (laughs) so that means that I need to get these chairs placed in the den in this order. And I need to have these microphones with these cables next to each chair. And, oh, she's left-handed, so her coffee plate (laughs) needs to be on the left side. And, you know, oh, he has a a cane, so he can't be walking over cables. So he's got to, you know— like, there's just so much thought and and detail that goes into that pre-planning and then testing of all of those things. So it's like, okay, let's, let's check every mic. Let's check there's no feedback. Let's check that there's no hiss or any hum anywhere. And then, like, not really going into a session until all of that is done. And then when they walk in, they just get this almost magical, seamless experience that everything just works. Hopefully, the first time everything just works. <laughs> Knock on wood, right? Um, but... I just, yeah, that that was a real paradigm shift for me watching that. And then, then you think like, okay, that is a part of how you justify higher hourly rates, higher day rates, higher job rates, because somebody knows that when they're signing up to work with you, they're getting this whole thing and they can just kind of bank on that. It's not, there's not a lot of variables from their perspective. And I, I think that's really cool. And a lot to be learned
1: for younger people who might want to do what you do, I think. Well, I really appreciate that, Ross. It sounded like a little PTSD there. Oh, yeah,
0: like a little bit, no,
1: but it's, it's, no, it's, it's, it really like, it it got me thinking, that's for sure. Well, you know, it's, it's a great point. And I think it's, it's worth um, saying that, you know, the, the whole reason that we do this, when we talk about passion and love, there's got to be some juice for the squeeze. And for me, that juice is, you know, we call it the goosebump around here. How do we get the goosebump? Yep. And it doesn't matter if it's a mix. It doesn't matter if it's an arrangement. It doesn't matter if it's a songwriting session. It doesn't matter if it's Sergio. Yep. It doesn't matter if it's a newbie with their guitar. It doesn't matter who it is. Yep. We're all looking for our expression, if it's a musical song or if it's a score or whatever it is, we're looking for the goosebump of like, ah, we did that right. That sounds great. I felt something. Because there's something about music that we would, I know, all agree is sublime. There's something that's bigger than the sum of the parts. And you you know as well as I do, when that mix is finally right, it can bring a tear. I mean, it can be like, oh gosh, this was such a fight. I'm fighting for this, not perfection, but you're fighting for that, like, that other quality, that otherness of like something Mm. truly great. It's like watching you know, Kobe mm. Dunk in the old days or something. It's just like watching yeah. someone who's really got and that's in a mix or in a in a it's in art. a session, in an art, artistic endeavor. Exactly. Hearing Maruha hit a hit a note in a pop song that'll just like peel the paint off the walls and like make you feel it. You know what I yeah. mean? It's like all yeah. of those things yeah. are are they the they're the stuff of why we do this. And so what's the number one enemy of that? The number one enemy is distraction. Yeah fear. And I tell the pencil story a lot. You've heard it, you know, where if they, oh, could I have a pencil? Because they need to make a change the producer asked for. And now everyone's yeah. moved for 20 minutes and now the session grinds to a halt because there wasn't a pencil on the stand. It's like every right. little thing that can take away from inspiration is yeah. is the enemy around here. You know, we, we are trying, yeah. and we fail. We don't get it right every single session, every single day, but we work so hard, as you described, to be ahead of it so that there's room for two things. There's room for you to breathe, and there's room for God. We like to say, you know, like, how do you know what you're going to play until you Quincy play Jones it? famous yes quote right exactly. So, so the the truth of that is the the truth of that is that you you have to prepare, and you know, some people might be able to do it faster than we can, but we we feel like. We have to sit in every chair that everyone's going to sit in and say, "Hey, does that feel right?" Because you know, Ross. For me, it goes back to those first sessions. My very first recording session was with Vicky Shaw in a big '70s studio, and it was like I'd never seen anything like it. I was, I was just hooked for life. I mean, just even the light switch—you know, that big potentiometer on the wall, the change how you know. It it like it like. Well, what was.
0: What was that studio that that we went to? Was it the bridge, the the classic where yes. we went? It was the bridge, right? Yes, in Burbank. So yes. that that was such a profound experience for me because, I mean, t- you want to talk about a mind blowing experience. I think people who haven't lived in L.A. or haven't experienced what the music industry is at the professional level, like if you think you know, you should walk into that environment. I think because right. so I was I was there with Scott and we we're watching and um. There, it was a full symphonic orchestra, and this is a place where, you know, I think they did Simpsons and various other big, big, big things yes. in this room. So we're sitting there, and, you know, all of these session musicians file in. They all, they're very cordial, very polite. They're, you know, shaking hands. Hello, hello, hello. Maybe, what, 40, 50 people walk in. Right. They all kind of, you know... They file into the room, and, you know, I'm thinking, like, okay, we're going to get some coffee, some, like, you know, we got a while, is what I'm thinking, before anything's going to happen here, because there's just so many people, (laughs) they all sit down, there's like, and then, like, somebody walks up to the podium, and it's like, one, two, three, four, like, they're just playing this whole thing, and then they're done, and I didn't hear a. I like. I'm not a genius, but I'd like to think I have a pretty good musical ear in terms of at least hearing stuff. I didn't hear a single mistake right. from any of them in like whatever however long the piece of music was. And then like the the producers and writers kind of in the control room, they're sort of sitting there and they're like, uh, you know, chatting amongst themselves. They get on the intercom. They're like, yeah, that's G three, uh, the G three on page forty four for the oboe. Uh, can we make that a G sharp? Right. Okay. Great. One, two, three, four. All again, except apparently with a G sharp this time in one part. And then I asked Scott, I was like, how many times have, like, have they practiced this? He's like, oh, they've never seen that music before in their life. That's they right. literally just sight read it. And I was like, you've got to be fucking <laughs> kidding me. That's not possible. It is a thing to behold. Um, and and musicians that that was life. when I'm like, okay, I bow down
1: for the <laughs> level of talent <laughs> In this town, it's insane. Oh, LA has has one of the, the best session orchestras, you know, and and seen. I wish it was. Uh, I you know, it's it's going to come back, but a lot of people are yeah. are going through it right now. But um, yes, crossed. that is something to behold, um, to see session musicians read something down because um, the nuance level that is coming. Um, across to the composer. Now, the composer has spent a lot of time with the music, so they know that, oops, there was a little something yeah. copied wrong for the oboe. So they, they actually played the note on the page, right. but the person that copied it right. didn't that, get the note yes. right. And they Nobody made a mistake. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's the part that you have to exactly. take away from this. But, you know, there is something beautiful <laughs> about the whole— If you look, if you, if you zoom back a little bit and you just look at, okay, there's a film— that all of these people are so invested in that now has hired a composer who has spent who knows how long making this music right with the directors to make sure that that story is being told properly from the point of view of the music. And then all of the people in the composer's world that have to get those musicians in the room, the contractors, the studio booked, all of that stuff at extremely high cost. So... There's a lot of trust the composer is trusting yeah. that the musicians are formidable enough to play that stuff down. The musicians are trusting that the music that's on the page is worthy of their time. The people in the studio are concerned that they capture because it's only going to go down one time and you've got 40 mics out there. And it's got you've got to get that rough mix perfect. It may be mixed later, but you've got to make sure that there's a rough there that somebody can approve in real time. On and on and on and on it goes, all the way down the chain. There are so many hearts and minds involved in the simple music behind, you know, one scene of one movie, and think about how much media gets cranked out. So, I mean, it's it's an amazing thing to be a part of that machine. It's very, very exciting, and in my latter part of my career, I really enjoy doing the scoring stuff as much. I still love a good rock record I you really can do, do that too but yeah. but <laughs> I, I I have to say that um, there is something about you know I think we all grow and evolve and you know there's there's something really beautiful about about pursuing music because it, you can look at any genre at any given day one day I'm working on beats for my assistant Sierra yeah. you know which is like these you know really contemporary modern beats and then the next day yeah. I'm I'm cutting a cello on a quartet, you know, or on a on a score for for Grant Fonda or someone like that, who's who's uh, you know writing for a a romantic comedy and it's this like heart tugging thing, and then over here's this western thing or this punk thing or this crazy jazz thing, you know, (laughs) and it's like and I think that ties back in you know just into loving what you do. I, I love me personally. I love the Surprises! I love not knowing exactly what's coming in. Um, I have a couple of indies coming in this next couple of weeks. I have no idea what they're going to bring me. I'm so excited. I have no idea what we're going to do and what's going to come out, but I know I'm going to be chasing that goosebump. And um, and so it's it's very much like you say. It's like there's so many aspects to it, and uh, and we can all you know we can all relate to that in different creative fields. But there's something there's something about you have a you have all this preparation. And you yeah. the studio's ready, you know, and that. So our little part is the studio part. So I care very yes. much about how do people feel when they're here. Is the audio spot on, world class? Because they could be at Capitol right now, they could be at the Village right now. They could well, they could have been at the bridge. The bridge isn't with us anymore. The bridge is gone. But um yeah, right. They could be um, in one of these world class facilities, and yet they chose to be here. And to me, that's a tremendous responsibility. And I. I want to sit in every single chair in that orchestra or I want to sit where the bass player is going to sit or I want to sit where the drummer is going yeah. to sit and feel what he's going to feel right down to where that music stand is. And as far as rates and all that stuff, you know, rates come and, and I, I always uh, look at it like this. If someone is not happy with what they think they're going to need to pay, then I haven't done my job communicating the value of what they're going to get. Because almost to a client, every time we do a good job explaining what they're going to get, they don't have a problem with the rate. Because they realize, especially the ones that have been around a few sessions, they realize that, Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah, I can pay half that down the street, but I won't love what I have when I'm done. It happens all the time. All the time. And I tell people, you know, this is a service business. If you're not happy with what we did, then we're not done regardless of what the rate or the hourly or the day rate or the week rate or whatever it was. And, and I also tell people too, that it's like, you know, if we're going to talk about doing this, it's going to be two things. It's going to be all of us trying to make your dream happen and all of you trying to get yourself in the room, you know? And, And that means you're going to have your homework too, because I'm not going to sit here and soft pedal the fact that you can't sing today. And you thought it was okay mm. to come to the studio. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, yeah. no, yeah. no, you went that's out fair. and partied last night. I'm sorry. You're I can't record this. You know, and it's not like ready, yeah. if, if that's my job, that isn't all my job every day. If I'm asked to produce right. it and okay, care. Sure, yeah. yeah. If it's their party and they're self-producing and they want to do that, um, then then of course, that's not my place to say. I would never say that. But you know, I work with a lot of people that that want me to weigh in on what they're able to do, you know? And mm-hmm. uh, so I work with a lot of vocalists and a lot of rhythm sections because those are kind of my, not that I'm a singer, but I, yeah. I really care about what comes out of the speakers and I have the ability to be a fan. And it's like, if it's not moving me and not touching me, then I haven't been able to achieve recording what that person said they wanted. If their stated end goal Absolutely. is to, yeah. you know, capture the heart and mind of the listener, then that's my job is to help them do that, you know, to extract to pull out everything they can. And I can't just yell at them to do that. (laughs) You know, we have to be, we have to be on the same page. We have to be partners and we have to trust each other, you know. And, um, and so I think that it's like, one of the hard things is that, you know, people get come out of school or they, they, they jump into this industry and they kind of want to jump straight to the To the chair that you or I might be sitting in where we can talk to someone in a way that has credibility and say, you know what, that was flat. Now, if I've never sung on a record and don't know what it feels like to think you're in tune and be a little under, I'm going to say that wrong. I'm going to say that wrong. And they're going to know it and they're going to get pissed. They are not going to be happy. Mm But when you can talk mm-hmm. to a drummer and say, "Oh man, that was awesome! Just lay back that snare a little bit, and we got it," you know, or "Hey, mm-hmm. uh, uh, pocket is insane. Can you tune up that D string?" You know, it, you've got to be able to do those things in a way that that musicians who have worked their whole life to play their instrument well won't like. Who are you to tell me whether yeah. this is my sound? You know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Right. So it takes I got $150,000 a hundred and fifty
0: thousand dollar violin here, asshole. Right. Exactly.
1: Exactly. <laughs> and it's like you know, it's hilarious the stuff that that you know you want to be able to say, but you have to, got to bring your humanity to it. You've got to bring um, that sensitivity of what they went through to get here to be able to play that and say it in a way that is believable purposeful and not just wanting to hear yourself talk because that's the number one thing we do wrong. You know, it's just like this. So, yeah. I, well, I, speak, I,
0: speaking of which, Scott, I was going to say, I, I feel like you've been incredibly generous with your time so far. I'm, I'm conscious of how long. We've been. I, mean, I, was, I could talk with you all day uh, about this stuff, as you know. I mean, and I know we will talk much more after this, uh, but I, I'm assuming you've got stuff that you got to get to. Uh, I know we've been, we've been at it for a good bit of time here. Um, so I just, I just want to tell you that I really appreciate you, know, you, you coming on, first of all, and sharing your wisdom. And I was hoping to get maybe a parting blow from you. Um, I want to hear what is the best, you know, career in the creative arts. We know it's tough, a lot of ups and downs. Yeah. What's the best piece of advice that
1: you ever got? In in career in the in like career advice yeah I'd say so well um, I would I would say um, this is going to sound a little weird but there is a composer his name is Jeremy Lubbock. Um, he's uh, he's in South Africa now I believe um, he was. Uh, he was one of the great string arrangers, a modern-day Brahms. I mean, I, I really think he was one of the best of the best. And, you know, a lot of what you ever mm-hmm. heard that was amazing come out of David Foster's camp and all of that, Barbara Streisand, all those people, they, they relied on Jeremy heavily. Yeah. So he was the real deal. And um, okay. I worked with him uh, a few times uh, on various projects. He brought me—I should i should say I worked with him. He brought me in on a lot of projects that I'm very proud to have in my in my history. Um, but Jeremy, uh, an Englishman, you know, very proper, you know, uh, London symphony orchestra kind of guy. And, um, uh, Jeremy said a few things to me that I, I hear ring in my ears every single day. Uh, one is, um, Scotty, there's no substitute for right. And when he said there's no substitute for right, I started realizing that it's like, Wow that is that is really something because it, when you think of it musically and you're really close mm-hmm. to a musical solution or a good mix or a good whatever it's like there's a fatigue that kicks in and it's like ah it's good enough or mm-hmm. oh this you know this will work mm-hmm. this will work i think is also yeah. the enemy of greatness you know right and right. so when he said there's no substitute for right it's like it's that thing that every time i'm a little tired or just feel like, ah, that'll that'll pass. You know, it's like, then I hear that ringing in my head and I, I go forward and I push a little harder, to, you know. Or if it's, yeah. you know, I got 10,000 samples I got to trim. Now, I can trim those yeah. manually and do them right so that they absolutely yeah. do not click and never need to be checked again. Or I can use some, you know, software crossfader to blah, 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 you know. <laughs> so the, there's no yeah. substitute for right is really one of them. And then the other thing he said to me that I, I think of every single day is it's not – how you play it's what's in between the notes that you play Mm -hmm. which speaks to phrasing and care Mm -hmm. and patience and all of the Mm -hmm. things that have nothing to do with the act of playing the note but everything that happened around the note the space around the note and it's like Mm -hmm. those two things are like you can apply that to life anywhere you want and those two things will serve you well you know So maybe I'll leave you with that. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a great ender. All right,
0: we're going to wrap it. That that concludes the official (laughs) podcast. (laughs) We did it.